0: Welcome to the Saturate Podcast. My name is Brad Watson, and today's episode is going to be with me, uh, Duke Rivard, and counselor, a pastor to pastors named Jeff Schulte, who runs a ministry called Tin Man Ministries, and he'll talk about that in our interview with him. This was recorded in front of a live audience, uh, so you'll hear lots of laughter, and even at times, you can even hear tears being shed. Uh, This was filmed live in front of the Soma family, the whole family of churches, pastors, elders, spouses, deacons from across North America and even from Japan and Mexico and a few other places. This episode is very personal. In it, we're actually going to cut a big piece where I share part of my story. I'll explain when that happens in the midst of the episode, But, but what I'm offering today is something that's that's both very personal about what it means to be pastors and leaders and in ministry, even in missional communities where we we lay ourselves bare relationally. But also, I think deeper than that is like, why, why do we relate the way that we do in trying to find Jesus as the source of our actual hope and belonging and satisfaction? Yeah, I think you're really going to enjoy that. Enjoy this. We talk about boundaries, codependence, Uh, so many other things. It's very, very helpful. So helpful that my initial instinct was to cut it completely and never release this at all. But instead, we're going to cut some parts of it and then make the other stuff very available to you. So with that, let's join and let's listen into this conversation.
1: This is the Saturate Podcast. Saturate is committed to seeing a gospel movement happen in North America and beyond, in which every man, woman, and child have a daily encounter with Jesus in word and deed.
2: This podcast is an ongoing conversation with disciples and leaders growing in the gospel
1: and growing in living the implications of the gospel in community and on mission.
0: Well, welcome uh, to the podcast, Jeff. It's really great to have you here and Duke alongside me, just like the the good old days, when we used to sit side by side all the time. That's right. And uh, Jeff, before we get into, you know, deep feelings and codependency in the pastoral life, maybe you could give us just a little bit of your background uh, and what you're doing these days, what, what's driving your kind of day-to-day laboring for the kingdom.
1: Man, a- asking someone their background is like a big question. So yeah. narrow so that like yeah, What part of my back? You want me to self-select? <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, uh, what i'm doing now um well i'll go back background is um you know i'm from dayton ohio uh raised in a single parent home six kids gene jack jim joanne jeff and judy and we had a dog named joker and uh my mom raised us alone um uh, had a dad who was seriously unfaithful to my mom divorced my mom twice actually remarried her twice grew up in a home then that was pretty like you're gonna have to perform to survive uh, and I don't mean that in a small way. She made $6,000 in a year. So it was, you're going to have to perform to eat, mm. which meant I remember being in the fourth and fifth grade thinking about this is how I need to perform in school and on the athletic field so I go to college. Because if I don't go to college, I'm not going to be able to provide for a family someday. Yeah. So I was already working in the fifth grade. Sports weren't fun. Sports was my job mm. because I wasn't going to be surviving unless I was good in school and good in sports. And so I was pretty driven. Somehow ended up coming out of that inner city home, uh, public schools. Uh, ended up, it's kind of crazy, ended up at an Ivy League school for college where I actually came, became a Christ follower. The way that happened was there's nobody from the Ivy League that recruited athletes or students from the Dayton public school system. Hmm. Uh, my son did some research on this, and I, I think I'm the only one that ever came from that school system that actually played a Division I sport and attended an Ivy League university. That's like how, that's how like, tough that school system was. But we were playing a school in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was Pete Rose's uh, actual high school, Cincinnati Western Hills, my senior year. And it was the one game we lost, which means we threw a lot. And I was a wide receiver. And <laughs> Yale was recruiting at Cincinnati Western Hills, white school in Cincinnati. And they uh, asked that coach, do you know of any other players in the community that we might want to look at? And, and I was the only white guy on my team and, um, in my inner city high school. I remember that coach said to the Yale recruiter, he said, well, is this this white, wide receiver up at Dayton Roth High School that I heard he's pretty good in school and he could probably get into Yale and he's worth looking at. So all that led to all of a sudden now I had opportunities to go to the Ivy League, uh, Princeton, wow. Yale, several other schools I got into, and I ended up at Yale. And my first month there, I came to know Christ. And I can tell you, it was, it was at first it was rough. Like I look back and I probably wouldn't have invested much in me if I'd have been the guy discipling me. But at the time, when I came to know Christ my freshman year at Yale, I doubled the ministry. There just weren't any believers on campus that would even admit they were. (laughs) And so he had no one else to work with, which is why he still worked with me. Mm -hmm. Um, But by my sophomore year, stuff started to catch. And uh, by my sophomore year, I knew God had called me to build the kingdom and not my own, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: which kind of lands me through a lot of journeys, a lot of hard left turns to where I am today. I've been a follower of Christ for almost 40 years, been in vocational ministry that whole time. Uh, a lot of failure, uh, some successes, and mm-hmm. in that, like I find myself today, being in a place of uh, caring about and loving um, high-performing leaders mm-hmm. uh, that don't know how to live.
0: Yeah, and the name of your ministry
1: is Man Minist- Ten Man. Yeah. So, what's that about? Uh, you know, I ran this by my kids. There's a bigger story to me even having that name. It has to do with a huge failure in my life that I had to create a. I had to create a, uh, an LLC to get paid by a company that was employing me to do some work because I had been fired by my job at a church. And I was standing down at the uh, the, um, the Secretary of State's office in Nashville, Tennessee. And I realized I had to name the LLC that I was gonna get paid on to be able to do this kind of work. And no, no one was gonna know the name of this LLC. It was just gonna be for me. And I literally remember standing there in the Secretary of, State, Secretary of State's office, having to fill out the form. It says, name, name of the LLC. And I could have named like Schulte LLC or something. But I sat there for a moment and I thought, How did I get here?
3: Hmm.
1: How did I get here where I'm having to even create this LLC? Hmm. And I called it Tin Man. Hmm. And then later when I created a nonprofit to do some of the work I'm doing now, I called it Tin Man.
3: Hmm. Because
1: the story of the Tin Man is a beautiful story. And actually there's a book behind The Wizard of Oz that most people don't read. And the book's not well-written, which is why you haven't read it. (laughs) But the movie's iconic, right? And I ran this by my kids. I said, can I call something Tin Man that's not just for men? And they go, oh yeah, dad, it's bigger than a man. But here's the, you know, the story of the Tin Man is, and, and the real story behind what you don't see in the movie, is there's a man that's passionate for a woman. Hmm. And he was a woodsman. And he fell in love with this woman. And he, she was a, a munchkin girl, actually. And he wanted to go have a life with her. And he was passionate about her and the life he wanted to have. Hmm. And so he went out to clear a field to build a house, to build a life. And the, one of the wicked witches was trying to stop the wedding. And so she cursed the axe. And so, while this tin man or this woodsman is in the is in the field clearing l- lumber to build a life for this passion that he had about a life with this woman he wanted to have a life with, the axe cuts off his arm, hmm. and then he goes to the uh, to the tinsmith who puts a metal arm on his uh, arm, and then he goes back out and he starts cutting, and then he cuts off the other arm because hmm. the axe is still cursed, and and now he's like going, wow, this is kind of nice. Like I don't get tired. Like I'm becoming a machine. Hmm. Cuts off this leg, this leg. This is all true in the book. Cuts his head hmm. off. Each time he goes back to the tinsmith, and the tinsmith puts a metal piece in place of a flesh piece. Hmm. And now he's just this glistening machine that doesn't tire. He's working his butt off, but somewhere in that journey, he went from human to machine, and he forgets why he's even out there, wow. and he's lost his heart in it. Yeah. And the tinsmith said, Now you gotta take care of yourself out there. And he stops taking care of himself. And then it rains, and then he rusts. And then he's stuck on this knoll. And that's when the, the scarecrow and Dorothy come upon him, okay? And that's when he says, you know, they, they find him, and he's frozen, and he says, oil me, oil me, like that, you know? Yeah. And then they find the tin th- or the oil, and they oil him, and he kind of lumbers off the knoll. And then in the book, what happens is the, there's an argument between the Tin Man and the Scarecrow because the Scarecrow is going to get a brain, and the Tin Man thinks he knows to get his heart back or to get a heart because he knew he'd lost it. Mm. So he'd become a machine because he lost his heart in the work, Right so they're arguing, and, and the Tin Man says, look, you need to know it. You can have all the brain you got, but like, you can't live if you don't have a heart. And so what happens is then they get, the, they get the lion, and then you got the lion, the Tin Man, and the Scarecrow, and Dorothy. They're all going to get something they want. But here's the truth mm. of the story. The Lion was brave. Mm. The Tin Man was smart. Or, I mean, the, uh, the Scarecrow was smart. The Tin Man had a heart he just become disconnected from it. Mm. And the journey to see the wizard is when they all discovered what they'd had the whole time. Yeah. And by the time they get to the wizard, he didn't give the man a heart. He puts a clock shaped like a heart, hangs it from his chest, it ticks. And it's yeah. just to remind him that he had a heart inside that it was beaten the whole time. He just becomes disconnected from it in the work he was doing. Mm. Does that make any sense? And that, I think that's the journey of most humans. We come into the world full of heart, fall into full of heart. And then we jump into life and to survive, we become machines. Yeah. And then we lose our heart in it. Yeah. And the work that we do is to help us find our way back home,
3: mm.
1: which is where Dorothy often wanted to go. Yeah. But the home isn't just to a proverbial home. It's it's home to us, but then it's home to God. Yeah. It's home to the family that I have in Christ. Mm. And that's a journey that none of us can travel alone. That's why I love the fact that four of them went together. Mm. And so I walk with men and we have those that work with me that walk with women. And we walk people back into their life with Christ mm and in relationships that matter to them. And that's why we call it Tin Man. Yeah, it's so good. It's a long answer, but I love the oh, story. Oh, great
0: answer. Yeah. That's awesome. Duke, uh, you and Jeff have been in relationship for over a year? A couple of years. couple yeah. Of years, yeah. Um, and and earlier today, uh, you shared a little bit about your your story and your kind of understanding. Maybe you can share that. Sure. Yeah, no, I found uh, Jeff Schulte when
4: I had hit a wall emotionally uh, where I had drained out from um, really codependent. So we're going to talk about what that is, um, but it was really just taking responsibility for other people's emotions and you know, hypervigilance, I think was the word you used earlier, um, of trying to think through every scenario of how any person could respond to anything I ever did. And, it's, and I, you know, there's lots of reasons for that, but it was, it was something I wasn't super aware of, but it was something that was absolutely killing me. And so I went to get help, and uh, God was gracious uh, through some friends to connect me to Schulte. We started working together, and uh really codependence ended up being being the
0: work. Hmm. Yeah, and, and that's come up often And our kind of at least that term <laughs> codependence. What's your functioning definition for that?
1: Let, let me say this before I say that. Mm. So the work that Duke did, okay, was not to become educated about what codependence is. The work that he did was the work relationally he did with me. Yeah. You see. The relationship was the tool.
3: Mm.
1: And so the relationship with me of him learning to tell the truth about himself to me was part of the beginning of his recovery of his own codependence. As he learned to tell the truth about himself Mm. to me, and for me not to be everything he thought would happen. You know, we're all afraid. If I I told you the truth about me, you'll what? Leave me. And what Duke watched over the course of a really significant period of time was every time he would open up with his weakness, he drew me toward him. Like I I moved in. There was nothing he shared that, that like moved me away. Or I went, oh my God, no, you're killed. Okay, we need to stop working. Like I didn't know it was that bad. <laughs> nothing like that, right? So it was just like I found it. And I just, I fell in love with him. And I even told him when we started working, I said, if we don't care, if you don't like me, this isn't gonna work. And if I don't like you, it's not gonna work. Mm-hmm. If we don't start loving each other, I can't help you. Because that relationship was the vehicle that actually gave him the corrective relational experience that was the beginning of a lifelong anecdote Mm. This thing that, what's, that that my job is to make you okay with me. Here's my definition. I, my job is to make you okay with mm. me, okay, so that I'm okay. Yeah. So I forfeit my inside for your outside. And there's that hypervigilance. So I find myself all the time checking in with what you're doing with me so I know if I'm okay, which now I have no identity. Like my, my whole job is to please, we call people pleasing but it's to please you so I'll survive. Now, that sounds dramatic. Mm. But I'm telling you, it's not dramatic for a child. A child that's made to survive, it's their jo- that, that it becomes their job in a fallen world to make sure their parents are okay with them so their parents won't reject them. Because if a parent rejects a child, mm. it's life and death for that child, which is how all of us got put to work. We, all of us got, in, a, in this fallen world with imperfect parents, There's listen, you do, if you're a parent, you're already doing this to your children. You, you just are. Which, by the way, the only antidote to that is for you to be human in front of your children mm. so that they don't condemn themselves, yeah. that they're not going to be perfect like you are because they think you are. Does that make sense when I say yeah. that? So i would summarize it this way. What happens is we come into this world fallen but with a strong sense of self. Mm. That child's not ashamed of their neediness. But then in some ways in a fallen place, they're abandoned by imperfect parents. and They start performing okay, to matter and belong. Well, they have to explain that away. And the problem is never going to be the parent. The problem is always going to be me. Because if the problem is the parent, I'm screwed. Like, But if the problem is me, I can fix that. Right. So I go from strong sense of self to abandonment, then to toxic shame. The toxic shame is what's wrong with me, mm. which then goes to codependence, which is the anecdote to toxic shame, which is now I can make you okay so that I'm okay mm-hmm. because something was wrong with me.
3: Yeah.
1: And then here's where it hits in ministry. The exhaustion of codependence is unsustainable. I don't care whether it's a church of 10 or 10,000. It's too many people to make okay with me. And people are always coming and going. And so it's a unique profession where I'm always being rejected. And you can say, I don't care, but I don't care is not the anecdote to to, to, um, codependence. Listen, I'll do this with Duke. Duke, do you care how I feel about you? Yeah, I do. That's not codependent. That just means I matter to him. And I want him to care about how I feel toward him. The question is, is he working hard to manage me, to make me okay with him so that he's okay? And that kind of work is what's exhausting, which then leads to some form of addiction or impairment or acting out because I got to seek relief to the codependence, which is the relief to the toxic shame, which is the relief to explain the abandonment, which is me being abandoned when I just came into the world wanting to be loved mm. and connected and cared about to live. Mm. And so the journey out is actually the reverse of what I just described. Pia Melody did a lot of this work. I'm not creating all this. I just, you know, <laughs> there's nothing new under the sun and Solomon said it all. But I'm just saying the journey back then starts being, I start confronting the things I do to medicate, what I've done to survive. Mm. And that could be performance for me. I had a huge issue with pornography from like the age of eight till I came to know Christ. And that was the place that, like, eventually that was the relief that I got mm. from the work of all what I just described.
3: Yeah.
1: I can tell you, I had about 18 years where that was non-existent, and I mistook that as being the deliverance of God when really I just found another addiction, which was ministry, because I had the ability, I was good enough in ministry that people, like, wanted me, or they wanted what I brought.
3: Mm.
1: I'd stand up, I met needs, people cared, they cared about me. I knew they cared about me because they stayed, the church grew, or the ministry grew, whatever it was. Does that make sense? But, but like any addiction, that burned itself out, and I went back to my primary addiction and got into trouble. It started leaking out sideways mm. because I'd never really gotten any kind of recovery around the stuff underneath all that form of acting out. Does that make any sense? Mm. And for me, ministry was another. Ministry was no different than pornography, and all of it was to find relief from how much work it took. To make everyone okay, and I don't know if any—I don't know who who the audience is for this podcast—but if there's people in ministry, I remember wrestling with this thought that like, how come I resent the very sheep that God's called me to shepherd sometimes? And really, what I was resenting was their neediness, because mm. I wasn't okay with my neediness, and their neediness looked like work to me. And I thought my job was to fix them, which is why it felt like work, which is why I really didn't know what to do with it all. And the more people, the the bigger stuff got, the more people there were. And I just wanted out. I needed relief from God blessing the work I was part of. That sounds crazy, but that's how insidious it is. And really underneath it is this thing called codependence. Yeah,
4: I've heard you say, Jeff, that the two most uh, codependent professions are, you know, clergy or folks in ministry. And, and folks in the medical field, why do you think
1: that is? You think about, and I'm, I'm going to speak to a room of, let's say, pastors for a second. Part of what helps me love people is I pay attention to their needs. Now, in my codependence, I need to pay attention to their needs. Hmm. Because their being okay is what makes me okay. Now, obviously, there's some good in that. I'm surrendered to Christ. I want God to use me for the kingdom. But I'm also surviving with these people the same way I survived in my family of origin. Hmm. And so this other piece of me that I'm just a little more more codependent than the average person, which is why I found myself wanting to help people. Hmm. And the helping people is how I help myself. My needs were being met through the helping of others. And the medical profession is almost the same. Now, there may be different motivations for why we become a doctor or why we become someone in ministry. But in that, We are wanting to help meet needs of people. And Mm -hmm. codependent people tend to be good need meters. They have to, to survive, and they learned how to, in their family of origin, to survive some way. Mm -hmm. And so I even describe my journey as, even when I was a church planter and I was in ministry, you need to know like I was, as as, as much as a human being can know their own heart, like I was on my face surrendered to God. I wanted to be part of something that Mm -hmm. could only be explained by the work of God. I didn't wanna do anything that someone could say, well, that was, you know, Schulte did that. I remember just going, I want someone to look and go, man, God must have done that because I just wanted to be a part of a work of God. And so I was surrendered as I could be. And so that was a river that I was in. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Now, there were milk jugs and beer cans and turds and (laughs) dirt. And there was a lot of stuff floating down that river along with this movement of God. And I think what happened over time was and I can't like judge one over the other because God was at work, but there was a whole lot of stuff I still needed to do work around in my own life mm. to clean up the river. Mm. And the river's still dirty. It's not as dirty as it was. Yeah. And some of the big milk jugs and some of the, I said it, like, <laughs> I use the word turd. So um, that was a lot, my performance, my drivenness in my need to please others. So I'd be okay. Mm. And the more those things had been sort of sifted out of the river, mm truthfully, I'm not saying God uses me more because I don't know if I can even say that. I can tell you this. I have a whole lot more of myself in the work I'm doing. Mm. I got more energy and more passionate than I've ever had. Mm. I don't find myself, I get physically tired. I'm almost 58 years old. But I don't internally get tired. I remember even when I was gonna be a pastor, I remember telling one of my mentors, Robert Lewis, I said, Robert, I don't know if I can be a pastor because I don't think I love people enough. And he said, Jeff, you're a leader, and the church needs leaders. So I I jumped into the church and started (laughs) leading, but then like really didn't want to like get into the, like if someone brought me their bowl of spaghetti, I was not the one to help them like bring all the noodles out and kind of make sense of it. It it was overwhelming to me. Hmm. I'm gonna tell you, the crazy thing is, the more the jugs and the garbage and the codependence has, I've been in some recovery around it, the freer that I become, to sit with a man like I'm sitting next to here and just love him Mm. and actually care about his life
3: Mm.
1: and be totally present as I can be for however long we're together when we were meeting Mm. and then not have to fix him. It wasn't my job to make him okay. Mm. It was my job to be with him Mm. and to be the incarnate presence of Christ to him that gave him the physical experience of you can tell the truth about yourself, Duke, and I am not going anywhere. Mm. And the healing that happens in the human heart, when someone finally has a relationship like that, hmm. you literally become, it's, it's what we call the incarnational ministry. I, I literally become an experience for him humanly that lets him touch a God who's that to him, but he can't touch him, but he's touching yeah. me. Yeah. I got my, Look, I got my hand on his knee while I'm talking to him. Like I, does that make sense? Yeah. And that's the work of, and by the way, that's not exhausting. Hmm. Right. At all. I I scare myself sometimes today with how much passion I have in me around this mm. and how almost limitless I feel like my internal energy is, even though my body's falling apart <laughs> and I'm getting tired or physically, but internally, I'm not tired at all. Mm. Because this is not, a, he is, I'm looking at Duke when I say this, you are not exhausting. And somehow, while he's eating that meal, there's someone else eating off the same plate. It's me. Mm. And so ministry has felt really different to me in the last 15 years than ever before. And um, I'm enjoying it more than I ever have. I feel freer in it and I get to be myself. Mm. I I make bigger mistakes, not the kind of mistakes I was making before, but one of my mentors said to me, he said, Jeff, he said, on your best day, you're a giraffe on ice. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) You're laughing because you watched me for a day. (laughs) Which means I can be very clumsy And throw myself out there and knock some people over and be myself in the process. Mm. And my job isn't, I know I'm not the cleanest, most precise, most logical, most articulate. That's not who I am. Mm. But I know how to show up. And so I'm just going to keep showing up. And that's so free. And I watch so many men and women in ministry that are so bound by the shackles of codependence. And then they blame it on ministry. Mm. Or the people that they're ministering to, right? And that's not where the problem is. The problem's inside their chest. It's not out there.
0: Mm. One of the things that people will say, i.e., me, uh, (laughs) is, yeah, it's like that sounds so beautiful. But I know this in my own family of origin, and I know this in pastoral ministry as well. You change the terms on a codependent. If I change the way I relate to my parents, change the way that I relate to my brothers, where I'm not going back to my middle school self so that they can all be okay, so that then I can be okay. If I do that, then I have to do that with my church,
1: people will revolt against Tell me. Tell me what you mean by that. Like, uh, First of all, I would press into this. You don't have the power or the capacity to change anything about you that way. Right, okay. So I don't want anyone to hear this. <laughs> I, I, don't anyone, I don't want anyone to hear this and think I can go will this right? Yeah, okay. okay. Like, like I, I talked to a guy today on the phone. No one will know who it was. And it was a guy I just met for the first time. And I said I had the same conversation with Duke. And I don't know what analogy I used with you. probably some sports analogy or something. But I told nine this guy, iron. I think it was a nine, nine iron. iron. yes. Yeah. I said I said I said so we're gonna to get to your question. I said awesome. Duke. I said nine do you golf? He said I golf. I said what's your favorite club? And you said nine iron. Nine iron. I said okay, mine was a seven when I used to golf. Okay, I don't golf anymore because like. I really care about how I feel about myself. (laughs) But but I said, Duke, there's something about the nine iron that when you stand over it, it just feels comfortable in your hand. And he will probably overhit what ought to be an eight or underhit what ought to be the other way around, overhit the wedge to get the nine in his hand. And here's what I know about Duke. Duke's smart, which means he knows how to figure stuff out. Duke's got a ton of self-will, which means he knows how to put his head down and get the job done. Mm. And Duke's got a ton of morality, which means he wants to do the right thing. Here's the problem. That's his nine iron. Mm. He's always going to think, I can figure this out. I can Mm -hmm. work harder and I'm going to slap myself and beat myself to do the right thing and shame myself when I don't. The problem is this journey isn't accomplished with a nine iron. Mm. And there's other clubs in the bag you were born with that are dusty and haven't been swung. And I told him, I said, my work with you is going to be to take away your nine iron hmm. and teach you to play some of the clubs in that bag. It'll connect you to the people yeah. that you care about. Okay, so th- th- that thing in you, I was hearing you talking, I was thinking, people are going to hear this and go, I can just go try to yeah. do different. It doesn't work that way, which is why the journey is so relational.
0: Right.
1: Okay, so go back to your question. People will leave. Yeah. So, what do you well, mean by they'll leave? People
0: leave, they'll revolt.
1: So <laughs> I'm trying to think wow, of my a way. Well, there's a story in that, by the way. Do you hear that? It was a huge story, well, which means somebody has. I'm trying to okay. think of a way of uh, of sharing. Do you want to go there? So, to, no, no, no. Do you so want to go want to, there? No, I want to share a story. <laughs> no, we can. Yes. <laughs> hey, hey, let's do this. I can do this. Let's do this. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh-huh. No kidding. <laughs> that, that would be unfortunate.
0: Okay, so after all of the laughter and things that just happened, uh, I began to share a very personal story from my life around a relationship that I feel like is codependent. Uh, And then in that moment, uh, I broke down. Jeff Schulte guided me through a few questions. It was really, really beautiful. Uh, I felt totally comfortable sharing in front of the couple hundred people or so that were part of the Selma family. I don't feel as comfortable sharing in front of the thousands of people that make up the Saturate podcast listeners. So uh, we're going to cut this part. Uh, and now we're going to we're going to go right back. And, and Jeff Schulte is actually sharing a story from his life uh, whenever he began to confront some codependency that he had with his mother, uh, which kind of gives a good example of, of kind of what uh, we're, we're all kind of facing in this kind of intimate relationship that he had. So we're going to Join the conversation again.
1: And I can tell you this. I love my mom more authentically in the last 15 years of her life.
3: Yeah.
1: For Mm. me doing this kind of work than all the years before when it was my job to make her okay. Yeah.
3: Mm.
1: And some of it started when I actually had to confront her on something. Mm. It had to do with the, the narrative around my dad. Mm. I can tell you when I pulled off the side of the road, I can tell you where I was in Franklin. I can tell you where I pulled my car off in that red Forerunner, And it was around all the narrative that had always been about that we were better off without my dad.
3: Mm.
1: And that's the way we dealt in denial with his abandonment of us. Yeah. And I remember pulling off the road and on the phone with my mom. And I said, Mom, I said, I know we've been saying that my whole life, but you need to know. Now, she's going to have some feelings about this. Codependence is you can't have any feelings. I said, Mom... I said, it was never better that our dad was gone.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I said, short sure of him beating us or sexually abusing us, which, if that's the case you, you gotta get out. My dad was a very flawed man. Yeah. Okay. But a flawed man is still a pretty good father. <laughs> yeah. That's my kids have had that. <laughs> okay. So I said, here's what I said to her. I said, Mom, I said, I will never have this conversation with you again. Mm-hmm. You're welcome to have it with my sisters Mm. if they want to talk to you about dad that way. But I'm telling you, it was not better. Mm. And I have spent my whole life dealing with his absence. Mm. And the phone got real quiet. Now, in that quiet moment, if you're me, what's happening in you with your mom? Oh, what'd I just do? Oh, I better rescue that. She's probably crying on the phone. My mom just melted down. Whatever, right? I'm telling you, yeah. in that moment that I in that it was the, in that moment that I was able to sit and let her have her own feelings about her own life, mm. that was part of the journey for me of learning how to care about people without caretaking them. Yeah. Mm. But I will say this too: the work around your family of origin has to be done in order to be able to do that work. With people that don't matter as much to you as those people did, right? Because it's gravity—like you can't, like the pull or the magnetism, a back toward that with your where you came from—is always going to determine how you're dealing with all these other people as a grown-up. Right. And so, what would happen would be something would happen with my mom. I'd be triggered, and I can tell you, I was in an adult body, but my insides was eight years old,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and I was right back in my house. And then here's where it got really big. My wife would say stuff to me. I remember one thing when it first hit me, my, my wife was saying, she was in a closet, she made a comment, she said, I just wish stuff would roll off your back like water off a duck. And I almost exploded with her. And all of a sudden I had this out of body, like, and I, and I, was, I was living in Anchorage, Alaska at the time. I, could, I was standing there in my bedroom, she just made that comment. I felt myself want to explode, and then I saw this 10-year-old boy standing in my mom's living room in Dayton, Ohio, and it was that pressure that I couldn't feel, I couldn't tell the truth about my life. I, I had to make everything okay. And my wife had just said something that took me back to that 10 year old. And that thing that came out of me toward her almost, and it didn't that day, it had other times, was all about me with my mom and nothing to do with me with my wife. Mm. Which is why the work around my mom helps me with my wife today. If that makes mm. any sense. Does that make any yeah. sense? Track, I know it's a lot, but mm. no, I'm tracking it. I was trying to give you a break right there.
4: (laughs) Catch your breath, Brad.
0: (laughs) Thanks for the break. You're welcome.
4: Yeah. yeah, One of the things you did there with your mom was establish boundaries. Yes. So something I've learned as I've continued on this road um, is that work of of establishing boundaries and learning to be okay with people having emotions around those boundaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe talk a little bit about boundaries with codependence and... Work.
1: That's a phenomenal question. And the concept, boundaries are closely tied to codependence because a codependent person has no boundaries. And they learned their codependence from people that had no boundaries. That's how it happens. Okay. And here's the way codependence even works. If, if this thing I'm holding in my hand, my Bible cover, if this is called codependence, which is rooted in toxic shame, I'm only going to get that in relationships with, from relationships that people that matter to me, which is, so if I'm the dad, I'm gonna hand it to Duke. And if Duke doesn't do something with it, you know who Duke's gonna hand it to? By default, his children. Because if a generation doesn't do their work, their children will have to do their work for them. Mm-hmm. So I go back to if I get, get my place back again, um, help me. Um, boundaries. Boundaries is where people are coming and going. I, if I have no, if I, ha, if I, my job is to, if I, my inside is dependent upon your outside. You, you are coming and going inside me, and it's like a door with no doorknob on it. Like, you just come and go like a revolving door, and I can't stop you because my job is always to make you okay, mm. okay? And here's how boundaries work. Boundaries work first when you start to realize that you have a doorknob on the door, which means it's a door that you can close and a door that you can open, mm. and it looks like a house. If, if, if the UPS man comes to my house, he's going to stay on the porch. That's called a boundary. I don't know that guy. And he would feel weird if I invited him into the house. Like, we're all good with him being on the porch. And, and I can be kind to him. I can be appropriate. I'm not being disingenuous. How's it man? Beautiful day. Sign the thing. Thanks for the package. Boom. And he didn't expect that he needed to come into my house.
2: Right.
1: Now, it's a big deal to cross the threshold from the porch into the foyer.
2: Mm.
1: Now, I had something happen. I had a neighbor's dog bit one of my kids. And I'd never met this neighbor. And he came to my house because he was scared I was going to sue him and have his dog killed. So he came to my house. I didn't do that. But he came to my house. He was scared. And I invited him in, but I'd never met him. And we talked in my foyer for an hour. And it would have been really odd to keep him on the porch. Mm-hmm. But he really belonged in the foyer because I don't really have an intimate relationship with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what we did in the foyer was appropriate to the situation. Okay? And then you move deeper into the house. Okay? If I came to Duke's house tomorrow and he kept me in the foyer, I'd go, what? Yeah. I thought we had more than that. <laughs> and I would expect that he would invite me in at least to the living room. Okay, Because I don't belong. I'm not a foyer relationship. Okay, Now, keep people on the porch that need to belong on the porch. Keep people in the foyer that need to belong in the foyer. And then you take some people into the living room. Well, then you take some people into the kitchen. I got one of my best friends lives in Anchorage, Alaska. When I I go up there every summer to do stuff with him, when I'm in his home, he doesn't even need to feed me. Like, I'm—we're such good friends. Like, if I didn't—if I asked him for something, he'd say, "Get it yourself." Like, no, the fridge is yours. Like, and when I walk into his house, I skip the living room and I go straight to the kitchen and sit down at the table and sometimes make myself something to eat. Now, if if you came to my house, you'd probably at least expect living room or kitchen, or let's say Duke would. Duke, if you came to my house and said, hey, Duke, I'm going up to my bedroom. Would you like to come up and visit with me? (laughs) Duke Duke would go, no, I think I'll stay in the kitchen. (laughs) Because the deeper you get in the house, the fewer people ought to be going with you there. Mm -hmm. So Duke is a dear friend, and he belongs in the kitchen, but Duke doesn't belong in my bedroom. And then there's a place in my bedroom called a master closet that my wife and I have our clothes. Now, that friend in Alaska I was telling you about? I've sat on his bed while he was in his closet packing for a trip, and it didn't feel awkward because of who he is to me. And he's the kind of friend that I've had him in the closet with me emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The deeper you go into the house, the fewer people that are there. Mm. And boundaries means knowing who belongs where and being okay with keeping a porch person on the porch, a foyer person mm. in the foyer, a living room person in the living room, a kitchen person in the kitchen, but having yeah. somewhere someone everywhere in the house. And by the way, without boundaries, people come in and they just come in the house and go and get food out of my refrigerator. I'm going, what? And then here's what happens. (laughs) If people are coming and do, if you've given people permission to live in your house that way, what's going to happen the first time you keep the door closed and they're knocking on the door and you're not letting them to have free reign of every room in your house? What are they going to do on that front porch? That's the revolt I'm talking about. That's why I'm going to the story. They're beating the door, and I knew we were going to get there. Listen, see, I'm leading this podcast. you're doing great. (laughs) You're beating, they're beating the door. How dare you not let me in?
4: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And in your codependence, you're going to go, okay, and you're going to open the door and let them in. And now you have no boundaries, and they're running roughshod all over your emotional life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so... I have to be able to let people have feelings about being where they belonged Mm -hmm. the whole time that I never got to have. And I want you to know that isn't something you just willfully go out and decide. Mm. That's something you practice in relationships to start learning how Mm. to tell the truth about some of those kind of things, have boundaries, and then stick to them. Yeah, Not rigidly, but like in a healthy way. And even to communicate those boundaries to that person Mm -hmm. because they're going to kick the door. In fact, I didn't do it today. But there's an exercise I saw one of my mentors do where I I literally, I was going to take one of you in this room and I was going to, and this is the way my mentor did it. I saw him do it. He would say, say, look, in two minutes, I'm going to put a hook inside you and I'm going to take you out of this room. And I'm telling you ahead of time what I'm going to do. And the way he would do it was he would invade their boundary, watch them not be able to say stop. Then when they finally said stop, He'd back way away. So, oh, okay, so that's what you, so, okay, is this far enough? That's what you want? Yeah, I'm okay, I get it. And then walk out the room. And now what are you feeling standing there? What'd I do? I must have done something wrong. I need to go get him. And you're gonna chase him out of the room and come back, say, come back, come back, come back. I didn't mean that. When really what you didn't mean was you got too close to me. You invaded my space. That was a boundary. I felt fear when you got right up in my face like that which triggers your, it's all about your codependence. Does that make sense? And then you apologize for having a boundary. And your codependence is how you act to go get them back when they feel like they, because what'll happen is they will, Man, it's seductive and it's manipulative and it's powerful. They will threaten to leave you when you have the boundary, which is why you can't have it, which is why you've never had it. Mm -hmm. Because they had to keep coming and going so they wouldn't leave. Does that make sense too? And it's the hardest with parents and siblings. Yeah. Because that's where we learned it. There's your story. There's mine. There's Duke's.
0: Yeah.
1: That makes sense? I know that's a lot. Oh, I
0: think that makes sense to me. I don't care about anybody else. (laughs) Okay, good.
1: (laughs) Man, I love that. And I love, listen, thank you. I love your vulnerability. Um, Thanks for even offering that, even in this room. Some of the laughter, I'll tell you, some of the laughter. Why do we laugh? It's relief. Mm -hmm. By the way, so that laughter is not, ha-ha, you're a joke. That laughter is, oh, that's true of me. (laughs) (laughs) It is relief. Yeah. So you're just really not very alone right now.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally.
1: Hey, you're welcome. (laughs) And by the way, by the way, that illustrates, that illustrates the power of vulnerability that you led all of us with your weakness and you invited this whole room to be with you. Mm. Now you invited me, invited Duke, but you invited everyone in this room to be with you. And that was like, I'm going you, you actually, instead of us talking about codependence, the beautiful thing you just did was like, you just kind of like lived it in front of us and showed us how I'd like to walk into it.
3: Mm.
1: And I just kind of went with you on it. Yeah, but thanks. I didn't go anywhere you didn't, you need to know this too, I didn't go anywhere you didn't invite me. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. Yeah, because my job isn't to rip the blanket off and expose you. Right. Because you're gonna run and hide. Mm. My job is to sit with you while you slowly pull back the covers and I slowly get to see more. And then you start realizing I'm not gonna leave you. Mm. And then you start experiencing Mm. the grace of the gospel in a relationship. Mm. And that, I'm just gonna tell you, intimate relationships are healing. Mm. Mm -hmm. And there's the whole Bible.
0: Yeah. (laughs) 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 Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Dustin's the lesson. What is that movie? Great. Anybody have any questions? <laughs> uh, let's. Uh, so we're gonna. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I think that's the time yeah, amount. Got uh, Donald's got a mic, so don't ask your question until Donald gets to you. David, you go for it. Because what happens is we say those things, and really what we mean is, but I'll and I will be able to handle what's gonna happen inside. Like,
1: how can we turn that off? See so if pause, take some rest, and get healthy. Interacting. With so we don't chase that person
0: down and say, no, 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 it's okay. And it's like, how,
1: how, do we, how can we do that? I, I think what you just illustrated in the question is the biblical truth that none of us change in isolation from each other, that, it, that I have to be in some relationships with some people to have that experience. So let me just give you an example of that. And I, when I first started down this path, it was a very vulnerable time in my life where I was choosing to say some things publicly about myself that I knew were gonna cost me. And I remember having on a three by five card on my mirror for almost three months, knowing what was coming. I remember it came after really a night where I was groaning before the Lord about the wrestling of, am I gonna hide some things or tell the truth about some things? And am I gonna be a David or a Saul? And I just remember just finally just kind of having a little bit of a moment of, okay, Lord, I, I'm gonna to have to trust you with this. But here's what I wrote on this 3by five card. It said, "If I tell the truth about myself, those who want good for me will move toward me, and those who don't won't." Which means and I'll say this when I look back I, it was, a, I was passionate at the time at church of thou, several thousand people. I remember thinking I had a thousand friends. And then I realized I only had a few, but I only needed a few. Okay. So what happens is when I begin to have some of these boundaries or I begin to tell the truth about myself, which I was telling the truth about myself to my mom, which was mom, I'm not gonna agree with you. I got feelings about my life now that I've not been able to say before. Now, she I think handled it beautifully. Uh, She cried appropriately, felt some shame about it. I think she might've even apologized, but for sure we never had the conversation again about my dad. She honored the boundary, it was amazing. I'm grateful for that. But a lot of times, when you do that, you are rejected by the person you're putting the boundary with. They'll manipulate you, you through the threat of abandonment mm-hmm. for you to try to open the door or for you to somehow cave, right, to whatever this thing is, which means in some ways they may reject you and abandon you. But what, I've, what, I, what the process is like, and I'm just going to do this hypothetically, let's just say it's just the three of us in this scenario. And Brad, you're the one that, um, that I'm doing this with, and you, you walk on me like a walk away from me. Well, where am I going to go with that? Maybe Duke. (laughs) Duke, I'm hurting. Mm. And this relationship is my place of comfort. Mm. So I'm still not alone. And I can tell you, as you walk this journey, the surprises are when you begin to kind of start to like, tell the truth about yourself and Mm. kind of the people you thought were going to come don't. And People that come, you had no idea they would. But here's what I can promise you this. I think I can promise you because God promises it. We're not left alone. Mm -hmm. But we have the pain of the loss of some relationships we thought were more than they are. Mm -hmm. And and I'm going to say, I'm going to throw this out for ministry, men and women in ministry. I remember one of my mentors, this was in my mid-40s when I sort of bumped into some of this kind of stuff. I remember him saying to me, he says, Jeff, you have no idea the gift you've been given. He goes, I work with more men who are at the back end of their ministry life who thought they would love the church their whole life. And at the end of their life, the church would love them back. Mm. And he goes, what happens is, at least in the old Protestant churches, they put your picture up to say you used to be there, right? But in today's church, two weeks after you're gone, the next guy that's preaching a great message is the guy that they're loving. And no one even knows you were ever there. And there's more cynicism and bitterness and hurt around guys who have given their life to this. And then the church didn't love them. And I remember Robert saying to me, Jeff, the church can't love you. Like your job is to love it, but you got to learn how to love something that may not love you back. But God's not going to leave you alone. Truth is, I pull my hand out of a bucket of Mm -hmm. water and it displaces fast. And all those people didn't love. Now they loved what I was bringing to them Mm -hmm. and they appreciated my care of them. But then another shepherd replaced me and he's loving them now. And there's an appropriate relationship happening between that new shepherd and those those other people but now I'm over here by myself going, what about me? And I'm telling you, that's what I've learned is, like, I don't get left alone. Mm. But I got to learn how to grieve the loss of relationships. I got to know how to feel the hurt of when people mm. leave. I got to tell the truth about the loneliness of a relationship that I've kind of realized I thought was really close, but maybe it was more mm. intense than it was intimate. Now, that's another whole concept right there, especially yeah. for, church, for, for, for the people in this room I'm sitting in with right now. The work we're doing with people is of such a great intensity that we mistake that for intimacy. Mm. And by the way, that's because we come from homes that we're not intimate at all, but just intensity of survival. Mm. And intensity is the closest thing to feel connected. And we'll take it. And then we're with all these people. We're doing this thing, and we're in it together, and we're connected which is why then we don't know what to do with like when two years later, this person that you are involved with them and the crisis of their marriage and the kid that was in trouble and all that. And you guys were like, you thought you were in it in the bunker. And then that person kind of comes and says, you know, I think I'm, I'm probably going to go somewhere else. We're just not growing here.
3: Mm.
1: And you go, what? I thought we were like together. Mm. And they go, no, we weren't never together. We were just like in the electricity of having our hand in a light socket mm. together. Yep. And we never really knew how to tell the truth about ourselves, which is how afraid we are, how hurt we are, how lonely we are together. Mm. So we really didn't have intimacy at all. We just had like foxhole false intimacy. Yeah. And that's where a lot of people in ministry, like that just slams them out of the blue. And I remember mm. Robert Lewis saying to me, because I hit this so soon in my ministry life, he said, Jeff, you can spend the rest of your life deciding if you want to go love the church or not. Mm. And know that it's not necessarily going to love you back, but you will have people in your life that love you. And you can tell the truth about yourself to them, and they're going to stay. And that's really all you ever needed, Mm. truthfully. Yeah, That's all I've ever needed. Mm. It's powerful. I I grew up in a home that we would, I remember us saying, we were just close, you know, tight, you know, us against the world, survivors, all that. I remember the first time I went back into that house, after I began to pay a little bit more attention to the feelings inside my chest, and I remember walking into that house for the first time and realizing, like, the predominant feeling that I had when I walked in that house was loneliness.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Because other than a brother, I had one brother that really, like, we lived a lot of the same life together. But I was thinking about my other relations with my family. I thought, man, we never really did know each other. Like,
3: mm-hmm. we
1: were survive. Like, we were just a bunch of like snakes in a basket mm-hmm. trying to survive and we bite each other to get out you know yeah. like kind of thing but we do that then in all our relationships mm. so that's just part of that's just my story yeah. but that's can be part of it yeah but what you said does happen it, it just does and that's why i need guys like this but by, by the david you know you think about this what did david do yeah we don't have time for that probably but, <laughs> but why, did, why did david's mighty men matter to him mighty men yeah why did they matter to him Exactly. Now, by the way, they were loyal to him. Do you remember the story when he said, I, they, like, they fought through enemy lines, we got some water from the well, brought it back. And he says, I won't drink from that well till you all drink it with him. Remember, they, man, they, those guys were like, yeah, we're going with David anywhere. Okay? <laughs> when you think about this, they were a place that David also could be healed mm-hmm. and cared for. And that's yeah. what a warrior does. Yeah. He goes out and gets his tiny beat out there, has a place to come back where people bound him up, mm-hmm. care for him, bandages, wounds, love on him, then send him back out to fight again. Yeah which is what I get to have to go out and do that. Right. And most of it, now, by the way, this is kitchen at least, mm. maybe some bedroom intimacy. I don't mean like in an inappropriate way. I just mean like, yeah. like that kind of, this is what you know about me. Yeah. And there's very few secrets with you. There's not hundred mm-hmm. people in there. There's maybe like my wife and maybe a couple,
3: mm-hmm.
1: which by the way, this is another whole blown up deal. Men that don't have men like that
3: mm.
1: put undue pressure on their wives mm.
3: Mm.
1: to meet needs for them that only a man can meet in that man's life. Mm. So what I do with men is I help men get needs met by other men so they can go home and love their wives. So they don't have to go home and expect their wife to meet needs that only a man can meet in that man's life. Mm. Because there's intimate needs I have that my wife cannot meet. Mm. She doesn't know what it's like to be a man.
3: Yeah.
1: Mm. She doesn't. Yeah. So when I talk to her about what I'm feeling, in some way she can love me, she can affirm me, she can be intimate with me, she can care about me, she can be tender with me, but also I'm looking going and she has no idea what it's like to be me. Mm-hmm. But if I sit with this man and mm-hmm. talk about what I'm feeling,
0: yeah.
1: now I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge deal too when, when guys just say, well, you know, their wives, are, listen, you, I, your wife is in the bedroom, mm-hmm. but a man better have at least one or two men that are that deep as well. Yeah. And guys in ministry typically don't do that because we're afraid to. What are we afraid of? Why would, why would God, why, why are we not going to do that? In fact, a lot of times the wife's job is to make sure the whole world know, doesn't know what's really going on in that man's life. My wife was so afraid to tell people about how badly she was hurting with me on some issues because if she told anyone the truth about what was going on with us, what's that mean for her security? Mm-hmm. So her job was to protect me and enable me, which is awful. And that's some of the dynamic that happens in, I think, ministry marriages. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, Anyway, no one in here can relate to any of this. Yeah, only mine. That was one question. Holy moly. Any other questions?
0: Yeah. That's my wife. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Watch that. Here... Uh, my wife is going to interact with us now. She was sitting on the front row, and she had a question during the Q&A time. And so she's asking, and, and Schulti's going to engage her in just what she felt as I was being open and vulnerable. And, uh, and, I, and
1: it's a beautiful moment, so we're happy to, to share it with you. Watch that. Hey, what, do you, what did you feel when he kind of had that moment? <laughs> Now I want you to say, but, you know, but like, just like, what do you feel about your husband? That's okay. Your eyes are saying everything. Yeah.
2: You lost his childhood. Yeah. Mhm. I guess so. So it's more understanding.
1: Mhm. you know why. Mm-hmm. So what's it? Oh gosh, there you go. Well, listen, by the way, I love. You it want for someone you. to cry with? No, 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 you. I don't. No, no, a, wait, wait, wait. Hold on I'm a, second. a home runner. Hold on. What, what is that like for you? I, you don't need to use that sheet. What's it like for you to watch your wife weep over your life and see you with unbelievable empathy and compassion? And you didn't say this, but probably like admiration. Are you proud of him? Yeah, that was some of what was in your, looked like in your tears. Like, God, that's a man up there. Like a man. He's pretty great. Oh my goodness. Now he's like, okay. (laughs) So, what's it like for you, for her to give that to you? Great. (laughs) And here's what's crazy like, we're like in a public place with a bunch of people. Can you imagine those two sitting on a, a stool, like in a bedroom? Communicating this level of intimacy, it would be holy. It's holy now. And you know it. Like you're ready to take your shoes off or leave the room. Let them be alone. It's very intimate. But that's the gift, by the way. And you invited that. Yeah. Do you know you did? No. You did. (laughs) Which means it's intuitive to you. You've got inside you God-given You know how to show up in a way that draws her in to be with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You didn't even know you were doing it, but you just did. Mm -hmm. It was intuitive. Mm -hmm. I led you just a little, but it was intuitive. And look how she responded Mm -hmm. because God made her uniquely to respond to you, which is why when you get some needs met in appropriate ways other places, it was happening with me in some way, then it gives you something to take to her to lead her as the initiator in that relationship. And then she gets to be a responder. She wasn't caretaking you right there. No. She wasn't making you okay. She was just going, oh my God, here's my heart. Mm. And you were going, ooh, that feels good. And I'm going, yeah, it does. Because you're a man. And that's what feels good to you as a man. Mm. And, and I said, I saw a little bit, and I don't think I put words in your mouth when you were like, like pretty, pretty, what'd you say, pretty good man? You, pretty great. Yeah. Like pretty great. <laughs> Wonderful. Like you see how scary it was even to, like pretty great was, uh, but like, this is
2: a public.
1: it's a public space, <laughs> but, but even there, what you're pay attention to how scary it is to be that vulnerable to tell him that he's, God, I love this man. And he, she actually it was in your weakness that she was drawn. That's called leadership. In fact, can you imagine what it must have been like for the disciples to spend three years with a man who was that present? Because Jesus was. That's why they followed him. Like, I want to be with him. That's why they're all willing to die. So you're beautiful. Okay. <laughs> what do you feel when I called you that? <laughs> mm-hmm. I said, you're beautiful. Huh? I said, you're beautiful. Yeah. What do you feel when I call you that?
0: Oh, I, I feel, uh,
1: I feel vain. Yeah, because
0: see, I feel look, like right. I'm pretty beautiful myself.
1: Okay. No, 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 no. no, and we use humor to back out of what feels terrifyingly vulnerable. And he just used one of his greatest weapons, and he tried it here, and y'all bit on it, and y'all laughed with him. And really what he did was he stiff-armed my movement toward him.
2: Because I'm Sorry. gonna tell you,
1: let me ask you this. We just met... Yeah. But do you have, you've heard me some teaching some. Do you have any level of respect for me on what little you know about me? Oh,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. So what's it like to have a man you kind of respect tell you that you're beautiful? That's really great. It's really great. Yeah. Just let that sit on you mm. because that's what you tried to push away because it's terrifying to be that vulnerable, to really believe that maybe a man you respect admires mm. you. mm, mm. Because you are, you're beautiful, but I didn't say this. You're also a mess, mm. but you're a beautiful mess.
3: Yeah.
1: And that's what's very beautiful. <laughs> we're so resistant to the very thing we were made for mm. because the vulnerability that it requires means we've got to let our guard down. And that's where I would say this whole journey with codependence is being in relationships where we start learning how to trust a little bit and put mm. our guard down, mm. and then we actually do get loved. Yeah. And all I did with you there is I just, I just stayed on you. I took away your nine iron, and I kept pushing you towards some other clubs. And then your wife's sitting over. I didn't know it was your wife. She hadn't even asked her a question yet. But, <laughs> but she, what you did here was more significant. Like when you, when you pulled out your putter, she was like, oh, my, there's my man. Didn't you? She's not, in my <laughs> All right. All right, well, what's your question? <laughs> i about everyone
2: into the living room. <laughs> I guess um, I have two questions, if that's allowed. One
3: is, does
2: everybody, does every human being have, and my second question is, in the process of what you're doing with Brad,
4: how or are you, all, are you creating codependence in that, like in your relationship for him to be able to discover
1: all these things about himself? Um, or how do you not do that? Okay, great question. I'll do the second one first. Okay. If I'm not healthy myself, I will use him to meet my own needs. And I will feed him to make him dependent upon me because my codependence, I need him to be. Mm -hmm. But I can just tell you, and I'm not through the woods and I'm not like out of the boat on this, all these mixed metaphors there. But the point is, (laughs) like, it's going to be my lack of codependence that keeps me from like enabling that with him. Does that make any sense? Because him, by the way, depending on me is not a bad thing. Needing one another is not wrong. And we need each other. Mm. It's okay for you to need me. And by the way, and Duke knows this, It was not a one-ray, it's not a one-way relationship. Mm. Like, you knew a lot about me. I did it in front of you guys. Like, like I share my own life with you too. Mm. So in some ways, like, I'm like doing the work myself while he's doing the work. Does that make sense? So that really has to do with the health of the person, which is why I'd say to all these people helpers in this room, if you can't do your own work around your own story you will you will have to create people that are both codependent with you and dependent upon you in unhealthy ways because it feeds something in you that has to do with your own codependence
3: yeah
1: and you won't love people you'll use people mm. Mm. you'll use people you won't be able to help yourself but they'll that they, you will get your needs met from them which is what makes you sick in the work of ministry mm. and eventually like, you're, it's going to eat you. Like, it's, it's unsustainable, and the very thing you build is going to be the thing. You know, you wonder why these, these, you see this with men a lot, but, like, it happens with women, too. But these men, like, they finally get to this place where it looks like they kind of did everything they wanted to go do, and, like, everything's working, and then they do something crazy. Mm. You go, where'd that come from? Listen, I know where that came from. And it's not a surprise.
3: Mm.
1: It's tragic, mm. but not a surprise. So that's your answer to the second question. The first question was, does everyone... Okay, let me ask you this. Does, does, does everyone come into the world, again, I've said this, fallen, children of Adam and Eve, fallen, but okay, with an expectation of care, nurturing, and protection? Yes. We live in a fallen world, which means we are raised by imperfect people. In the imperfection of those imperfect parents, Will there be an element where I heart start to learn in my attempt to survive, whether I'm, whatever language I'm speaking, the color of my skin, or what country I'm in? Will there be something in me that's so desperate to survive that I will try to figure out what I got to do to make sure those people don't abandon me? Mm. Yes. That's sin. And it's also the world system that's working against the very thing we're made to have. So the answer is yes. None of us escape the tragedy of the garden. Mm. Mm. which is why only in Christ, first, there's not just the justification that's the beauty of the gospel. Mm. It's the sanctification, which is the beginning of experiencing what one of my mentors called the now and the not yet. Like I'm, the kingdom is, I'm experiencing moments. You two right there experience this moment of though I see through a glass darkly, someday I'll see face to face, Like you had this moment of glory. You scratched the frost on the glass. You saw through. It was this powerful, intimate moment. And something in your chest said, oh, this is so scary, but I want more. Mm -hmm. Your chest tingled. Like, and it just felt uh, crazy and wonderful. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. I've got two grandkids that just left my house. They were there for Christmas. And when I walk in the house, those kids run crazy for like two minutes, like all over the house, me chasing and all that. It's like their bodies don't know what to do with how excited they are because grandpa just walked in the house. Because they know I love them, I'm crazy about them, I'm gonna find them, I'm gonna play with them. And I'm sure they're not protected yet. Four and two. They're not like they're letting their bodies take it. Like, I know he loves me and he's gonna chase me and snuggle with me. And they're not like, they're not guarded yet. And they let their bodies. Feel what it's like to be delighted in. Mm -hmm. And when we start having to protect, to protect against our vulnerability, and then we actually experience that little four-year-old feeling, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh crap, get me out of here. I better tell a joke or I better dismiss you. (laughs) But none of us escapes it. Some of it, it's worse than others, Mm -hmm. just depending upon where we come from. Mm
2: -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm.
1: Great question, but no one escapes the fall. And that's one of the implications of the fall. Don't hear me say that like codependence is like the sin. I'm just saying it's the fruit of a s- sinful system mm. that's about self-preservation. It's about I need to be in control to survive and I need to be powerful. It's, it's the, the first fit in the garden, even like I can't trust God, mm. which means I'm gonna have to take care of myself, which is why I can't be vulnerable.
3: Mm.
1: And it's just, and that snowball rolls down a hill and picks up speed and weight. And it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And as you get more, recovery around codependence. I would say if someone doesn't know what it looks like, go to an ACA meeting, Mm -hmm. like a 12-step meeting, adult children of of alcoholics and other dysfunctional families. That's a whole movement of recovery that, quite frankly, is the bedrock. ACA is the bedrock that's underneath OA, AA, S-A-N-A, all the different substance, process, uh, gambling, anything up here, up underneath that, because codependence is under it. The work that happens in an ACA 12-step meeting It's really about dealing with the codependence that's Mm. behind those other addictions. Man, there's a lot of guys I work with. I just just start going to some ACA meetings. Mm. And you just listen to the the carnage of what codependence has cost you coming from the family you came from that may not have been alcoholic, Mm. but was, like, dysfunctional. By the way, when I say dysfunctional, I don't mean sick. I mean, like, we couldn't tell the truth about what was happening here.
0: Right. Mm. Because every family is a mess. Yes, but the the dysfunctional family is the one that says we can't talk about the thing.
1: Yeah, bam. It's a great scene, man. It's a great scene. If you've not seen, um, uh, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. There's a scene in the movie since so it's not a spoiler. There's a scene in the movie where, where um, uh, the movie's about uh, an Esquire magazine writer who is cynical about who Fred Rogers was, and so he's going to do an expose on him, and basically he finds out that Fred Rogers really was who he, who he was. And if you watch the movie, you're going to see a ton of 12-step recovery in Fred Rogers' life. Mm-hmm. He was in recovery of rage. He was a rager. And you can see the way he's learning how to like, live in recovery around that thing in him that wants to control and then gets big. And so really in his recovery, he becomes this really gentle, beautiful man, right? And then uh, Daniel Tiger is the voice of his toxic shame and all these characters. He's playing out his recovery in front of us. And, and, and what he did, mm-hmm. there's a scene in the movie where this family sitting in a living room. And the dad of the family is dying. Like he's in the hospital bed in the mm-hmm. living room. How many, raise your hand if you've seen the movie. Okay, you can remember this scene. And they're, they're talking about the family vacation they, that they had gone on and dad couldn't go. And they were going, ah, oh, dad, we're sorry you couldn't make it this year. Then they, they go into this mode. But next year, dad, you know, we're going to yeah. go to the Poconos or whatever it was. We're going to go and you're going to get to go. And, We'll do it next year and you'll get to be part of it. Well, the guy's in a hospital bed and hospice in his living room. Everybody knows that he's leaving that house when he's getting in a hearse, okay? Fred Rogers is sitting there watching all this. And there's this real pregnant moment. They're sitting there and everybody's like caretaking everybody, not talking about the truth, about the fact that their dad is dying in front of them. And Fred Rogers does this. Can we talk about dying? Mm -hmm. And then he says, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. You see, my kids grew up in a dysfunctional home because I was the dad. The thing that's changing is I'm giving my kids permission to talk out loud about the dysfunction. Hmm. Not just my dysfunction, but the roles they all played in it. Right. I mean, I I love getting locked in a car with my kids for road, picking them to school, whatever, because like I bring stuff up and I can tell them about like being the lost child and how I was the hero and I had, you know, whatever, all these different roles we take on to keep the family okay, and when my kids can talk about the roles they took on or the effect I had on them, mm-hmm. man, there's the freedom. Mm-hmm. And we're also breaking codependence by actually telling the truth about the elephant in the room. Right. Mm-hmm. So the only thing that makes a family functional is that they can talk about the dysfunction. Right.
0: Which I think, if you take the someone has a question, I'm sorry, yeah. but that'll that that's got to duplicate itself on a mass scale in a church. Oh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like it, that's it, the dysfunction the of a church. A dysfunctional church is one that can't talk about the dysfunction. That's right. Mm. Yeah.
1: And, and by the churches, churches are spin masters. Like, like we really think people are stupid. Mm. Like, like, you know, we, you know, some big conflict happens and someone gets fired and, or they weren't, doing their job or they stole something or something. And I'm not talking about shaming people or dogging it on public, but like we stand up and say, oh, you know, we just want to announce today that you know God's called Bill somewhere else and we're (laughs) gonna celebrate that, you know? And we wish him the best and God's had been at work and we knew Mm -hmm. this was coming, he knew it was coming. So let's all thank Bill, he did a great thank you, Bill. We love Bill, there's no hard feelings here. You need to know there's nothing happening behind the curtain, (laughs) you know? And people are sitting out there going, what, that can't be true. Mm-hmm. And they know it's not. And then they stop trusting us. Yeah. Because they know we're lying to them. Yeah. Because we're being codependent thinking, if I told them the truth about what we don't know how to do. 100%. Whoo. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's like we parent the church the way we parent our families. Right. Mm. I mean, really, I, I had a really, uh, my, I, had one, I have an older son. He's, this was years, several years ago, but when I was in a really dark place and I knew publicly I was going to say some things that he was gonna have huge feelings about with me as a dad. And I wanted him to hear it from me before I had to say it in public. And I remember taking him into the closet of my bedroom, literally, like two doors in, sitting on the floor of the closet. My 12 year old son's about ready to like, I'm thinking his is about ready to fall in front of him. And I remember sharing with him things that I had done, ways that I'd harmed and hurt his mother, ways that I had harmed him, ways that I would betrayed the church I was leading. All those, I just I just had to give, he's 12. And I go, but he's got to hear it because everyone's gonna know it. And here's first words out of his mouth. Mm. He looks at me, he's a 12-year-old kid. He says, Wow, Daddy, I guess I'm more like you than I thought.
3: Mm.
1: Now, at the age of 12, he wasn't struggling with the things I shared with him. But I think what he was trying to say was: if I could put words in a 12-year-old, was like, you know, I, mean, I remember having this image, it was back in, it was after, uh, it was around the time of uh, when we invaded Iraq and they pulled over that Saddam Hussein statue with the rope. And I remember thinking of having this physical picture of me standing there being pulled over in front of my family by my own doing. And I thought, man, my son is never going to respect me again. Mm-hmm. And uh, it worked the opposite. Yeah. And the gift has been, it's not a perfect relationship because none of us have those. But the intimacy that I think God has given me with him over the last 14, 15 years of what he's willing to tell me mm. about his interior life, that door got opened in a closet in my mm. bedroom in 2006. Yeah. When I did the greatest thing I feared and found that it actually opened up my son to me, mm. which again goes back to go, How do we do this? I go, Can mm. kind of we do it clumsy like that? Mm. You know, and some people leave and some people stay. Mm. And my son had to decide: Could he love an imperfect dad,
3: mm.
1: and not the dad that he had to make me
3: mm. prior to that? Yeah,
1: does that make sense too. Yeah, that's good. So he had to look at me for who I am and go: Now, do I still love him?
3: Mm.
1: And he does, and that matters to me because yeah. he's not loving who I'm pretending to be. He's not loving my false self. He's loving the right. real Jeff as much as it's appropriate for this man to give that much to one of his children.
3: Yeah, it's good.
4: We should shut it down. 6:30. <laughs> uh, we got yeah. so, someone, yeah, uh, We got happy hour. Alarm on. Thank you, yeah. Jeff. This yeah. was profound. We give Jeff a round of applause. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Hey. 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 By the way, I, I do this, and I ask permission. You just hug me there, but like even even when I meet with my groups of guys, and Chuck knows this. He's seen me do it. If we end every meeting. Here's what we do. Like we, let, we, we get in a circle after the work we just did. Because by the way, this is what you're going to do. It's called a, a vulnerability, you know, boomerang, hangover. What will happen is typically when, a, when someone's real vulnerable, they'll walk out and go, what did I just do? <laughs> Feeling tons of shame, toxic shame around a beautiful thing you were. So what we always do, I end up all these meetings. I can't do it when we're on a video call, but when guys are in my office or we're in a circle doing some of this kind of work, We used to do some kind of prayer, like a serenity prayer, which basically says I'm not in control and I didn't have to fix anything here today. And then we end it by saying, keep coming back because I need someone to tell me that with what I just brought them, they want me to keep coming back. And then every guy gives every guy a hug. And it's not one of these hugs. Hey, bro, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or not one of these hugs. this is uncomfortable, okay? I teach guys how to hug because I also need an appropriate physical touch where someone told me they want me to come back and then they hugged me and told me they meant it. And then when I walk out to the car, I had something planted both in my head, but really more importantly in my body that said, I really can come back and I'm wanted there. And I think that guy was telling the truth. So when you got up to give me a hug, I went, that's a real appropriate way to end the way we did this podcast, because this was more than a podcast. This was a gift to anyone in this room. It was a gift to me and a gift to you. So you need to know, like, if if you got to get a hug from somebody, go get it. But my fear would be that you would walk out and then shame yourself for being so beautifully vulnerable and being such a gift to your husband in front of all of us. So thank you. Thank you.
2: Today's podcast was edited by Ben Fort and our theme music is written and performed by the band Mo
1: Saturate's hope is to see one missional community for every 1,000 people in every city as we see the glory of God fill every person, every place, and every church. We participate in this vision by curating resources, training, coaching, consulting, and many more ways. Find out more at saturatetheworld.com.